Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast, Finance Friday Edition, where we interview Zoe and talk about how to invest for the future. The tool I would recommend there for you is a one-page investment philosophy. And I think that to put that together, you have a lot of homework to do because the investment philosophy follows you for a long period of time. And you've got to make some hard choices when you get into that. If you had come in and said, I believe in Google, Amazon, Facebook for these reasons, and I have these stocks, I think that over 30 years, they're going to do phenomenally well. And I'm ready to ride the ups and downs that come with investing in tech stocks in good times and bad. That'd be totally fine. That's not your viewpoint. You're like, I invested in them because they were the top of the list in Robinhood. And uh, now that they're down, I want to pull out. That means that, that that philosophy is not yet developed. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Mindy Jensen. And with me, as always, is my forward-thinking co-host, Scott Trench. That was an introduction for the future, Mindy. <laughs> that was terrible. Whatever. We'll just keep going. <laughs> <laughs> they can't all be winners, Scott. Scott and I are here to make financial independence less scary, less just for somebody else. To introduce you to every money story, because we truly believe financial freedom is attainable for everyone, no matter when or where you're starting. That's right. Whether you want to retire early and travel the world, go on to make big-time investments in assets like real estate, start your own business, or come up with an investment philosophy, we'll help you reach your financial goals and get money out of the way so you can launch yourself towards those dreams. Scott, I am excited to talk to Zoe today because I think she's facing something that a lot of people are facing for the first time, a downward trending market. And I want to, I really want to hammer home the the thought that just because your stocks are down, just because your portfolio total value is down, doesn't mean you have lost money unless you sell the stocks. And yes, you have sort of lost money. Help me figure this out, Scott. Help me enunciate this correctly, because you, you haven't lost money unless you sold. You still own X number of shares of this individual stock or that index fund. You just It's just not worth as much as it was last month. At least in the accumulation phase of building wealth, you never spend the principal. So if I invest 100 bucks, I'm never going to spend it. It's just it's just not part of my life. It's not something I consider as part of my wealth or that I can that, that, that I'm able to access. I'd only ever spend the returns generated by that $100, right? So the the dividends for example or the appreciation over the long term. But I'm going to stick with that investment for 30 years or maybe forever. It may I may never sell the index funds that I purchase. Um, and so how, you know, am I going to lose money? Um, sometimes the paper value of that will go up or down. But my, but I just keep buying, right? We, we, who, who we interview, uh, Nick Maggioli, um, a few weeks ago. He wrote a book called "Just Keep Buying." That's literally the title of the book, um, and it tells you all you need to know about my index fund strategy and my real estate strategy. Now, real estate you do have to sell at some point because you lose the depreciation benefits, and there are tax reasons, so you can't hold it for more than twenty-seven and a half years. Um, but if I, if that didn't exist, I would literally hold my properties until they fell down um, as well, because that's my that's my investment philosophy. You can hold them. If it's a great performing cash flowing property, you don't have to just sell it because you can't depreciate it anymore, Scott. That's true. Yes. But but I will probably sell it because the, the, the ROI does get compressed when you have to pay, start paying a lot more in taxes. Yes. Yes. But the way you phrased it made it sound like you have to sell after 27 and a half years. That's true. Yeah. But anyways, yeah. And, and that's that's the big piece here. And I think that's that, that's hard to accept until you've really internalized your investment philosophy. And that takes dozens, maybe hundreds, maybe thousands of hours of reinforcement of your investment philosophy through books, read different perspectives. Um, I told Zoe, our guest today, to read books on how to pick stocks 
and books on why index funds are so valuable because that will help solidify whichever approach you choose to take. I've read them both and I've decided that index funds are the, the approach that are best for me. And because I have that perspective and because I believe I have at least a journeyman's baseline understanding of how to pick stocks, I've decided to do in, to, to invest in index funds. And that allows me to stick with my approach for the long run um, without having to get be fearful in a market like, uh, like 2022. Yep. I think that your investment philosophy sheet is really helpful or will be really helpful for people who are experiencing their first down market. If you don't know what you're investing for, if you don't know what your philosophy is, you're going to have a hard time weathering the storm. Also, if you are having a hard time weathering this storm and you are a buy and hold investor and you don't plan on selling your stocks, stop looking at your portfolio. If you're not going to sell it anyway, what does it matter if it's down a dollar today or up $2 tomorrow? Stop looking at it until the market evens out. Before we get into today's show, let's take a quick break. Remember when you had to pay to get a leads phone number? It was like the dark ages until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets, we turn to NerdWallet. Scott's right. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, Mindy and I were paying for vacations in cash, missing out on miles, and not even knowing what we're leaving on the table. But now we're flying through the skies for free, thanks to our new cards with more miles and upgrades than ever. So if you want more travel rewards, hotel upgrades, or airport lounge access, no matter where you go next, let NerdWallet help you make it happen with a killer travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms of each credit card issuer apply. It's Military Appreciation Month, so I'd like to personally thank all our past guests who have served and all our listeners who are serving, deployed, veterans, or in the reserves. But I'm not the only one showing appreciation. Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate their members who go above and beyond with exclusive rates, discounts, and tools. This month, join Navy Federal and get $50 when you open a credit card. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate to see their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. With 24-7 U.S.-based member service and resources for veterans transitioning to civilian life, Navy Federal is here to help you reach your goals. Head to NavyFederal.org slash celebrate. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, equal housing lender. Disclaimer, must join an open membership savings account between May 1st and May 31st. Annual percentage yield 0.25% for membership savings account. 
$5 minimum balance to open, maintain membership savings account, and to obtain bonus. Visit NavyFederal.org for more terms and conditions. And we're back. Before we bring in Zoe, let's remind you what my attorneys make me say. The contents of this podcast are informational in nature and are not legal or tax advice, and neither Scott nor I, nor Bigger Pockets, is engaged in the provision of legal, tax, or any other advice. You should seek advice from professional advisors, such as CPAs and accountants and attorneys, before making any financial decisions. I think I did that pretty good from memory. All right, let's welcome Zoe to the show. Zoe is our guest today. She's single and looking for steady passive income to cover her expenses and also help with her parents' retirement. She'd like to live in a big city, which means a higher cost of living. But she lost money in the stock market due to inexperience and lack of research, which is something that happens all the time. So I hope she doesn't beat herself up over that. Before we chat with her today, let's look at her money snapshot. Here is a general view of where her finances are. Uh, we've got a salary of $5,100, yay, Zoe, plus additional income of $1,400 a month from her house hacking roommates and $200 additional for utilities. She's projecting a 10% bonus from work, and she has a side hustle that brought in $2,500 in October. That is uh lumped together to bring us a nice, great big total. Now she sent in her expenses, but honestly, they total up to $3,300. And I don't see this as being a big problem for Zoe. If these expenses are accurate, this is this is a great amount of expenses for her in her situation. Of course, you can always cut out expenses and you can always reduce expenses, but Zoe has a delta of $1,800 before the $1,650 from her roommates for their portion of the housing expenses. So again, I don't think spending is her problem. My advice here would be just to make sure that these are your true expenses and that if you do have approximately $1,800 left over at the end of the month, then you know these are your true expenses. If you have significantly less, then it's time to start looking at where your money is actually going. And I'll, I'll just point out a few things there as well to follow up on, on what you said, Mindy. Um, we have fourteen fifty a month coming from house hacking roommates and a mortgage of sixteen thirty. So you're paying two hundred dollars to live plus your share of utilities, essentially, and that leaves all the other expenses that are adding up to the thirty three hundred, right? So I mean, you're spending less than what seventeen hundred dollars a month on everything besides housing and two hundred a month on housing. It's it's phenomenal situation. So I think we're gonna have a lot of fun today. You're gonna have a lot of really good options. Yeah, I think we have a lot of fun today. Um, Zoe did send in a, a detailed spreadsheet, so I am fairly certain of her numbers here. More of a comment to those who are listening. Something I see frequently is people think that they're spending X, but then they also don't have any money left over at the end of the month. And if this is the situation you find yourself in, I encourage you to track your spending as granularly as you possibly can to make sure that you are, in fact, spending that much. What we find frequently is people forget about, oh, yeah, I've got that one expense and that one expense. And all of a sudden, there's where all the extra money is being eaten up. Uh, Zoe's also doing really good on the investment front. She has a current 401k of $1,500, but that's because she just started a new job. She has Roth IRA of $15,000, 401k of uh, Roth 401k of 2900, ESPP employee stock purchase plan of $200 right now, but again, brand new in this, uh, a previous Roth 401k of $15,000 two after-tax brokerage accounts that are approximately $20,000 and cash savings of $31,000. So she's sitting 
really pretty. Plus a house hack. Plus the plus the house hack. I mean, yeah, we didn't even include that, and we don't have equity in that investment. Uh, we don't. Uh, we we have equity. We don't have it listed here. So Zoe, let's look at your money story really quickly. How did you get to this phenomenal position, and what on earth can Scott and I help you with today? <laughs> yeah. So I grew up. I would say like below the poverty line, and so expenses and you know money problems was always prevalent in my early life. And so seeing my family struggle and pinch pennies and not having a clear goal or idea of where they want to be really resonated with me. So I guess early on, I was always really um, careful with what I spent my money on, you know, always like negotiating (laughs) expenses. And so as a result, I've kind of really put myself in a position where, you know, I'm always thinking about how can I make sure I will never like go in reverse, essentially, make sure that I will never be in a position that um, I was growing up and making sure like building wealth for, I guess, future generations to come in my family. Awesome. How long has the current situation been going on? Can you give us a, a, an overview of the recent past? Um, you, you're saving three, $4,000 a month, it seems like, when your side hustles are kicking in. Um, and has that been continuing for a long time or is that a relatively new phenomenon? So the, hi- the side hustle started in September. So before that, I wasn't saving as much. I was closer probably to like the 2K mark. But now with like this additional income, you know, I'm really struggling to decide like where should I put my money and, you know, can I move on to better things like move to a bigger city like Mindy spoke to. When I graduated in 2019, I was, you know, I only had 5K to my name and I think 3,000 of it was in a CD account, so I couldn't even touch it. And my first position that I had, uh, career-wise, they had us go to essentially a convention for onboarding and you're supposed to pay for your own expenses and they would reimburse you in the next pay period. So I remember being like scared because I had almost three grand on my credit card and I was like, you know, how am I going to pay this off? How am I going to last until... I get reimbursed for everything, like the plane ticket, the stay, you know, the hotel expense, uh, the food. And so that was kind of a wake up call, like, okay, like, this is what it's like to go out into the corporate world. It's, you know, you really got to focus on how you're going to be able to give yourself that cushion. So uh, like, I'm never going to be in that position again, of like fear. (laughs) I like your mindset. I want to uh, call out all the employers that make you do this. This is so stupid. If you're hiring fresh out of high school or fresh out of college graduates, don't make them buy their own plane tickets. That's just mean. Okay, sorry. From, from the employer perspective, I'll just say that sometimes employees prefer that because they get to pull, get all the rack up all the credit card points uh, and they're getting reimbursed. So yeah, I think it's wise to provide the option either way. Yes, the option. I prefer it, and I'm kind of myth that bigger pockets took that away recently. However, I also am not right out of college. I know it's hard to tell, but I graduated from college a couple of years ago. So your employer wasn't evil. It just scared you in that situation. But that's a really that's a really good reason to be like, you know what, I'm never going to have to worry about that again. Yeah, exactly. I don't think you will have to ever worry about that again, by the way, um, as we get into your numbers here. I think that that's immediately clear from the the, the financial profile you've shown us so far. Well, I like to hear, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, let's talk about that that uh, initial Robinhood and E-Trade investment that you think you lost money on. Did you sell the stocks or did the stocks just go down? Because right now, like everybody's losing money and it's, it's, it's losing money in air quotes. You're still like you still own X number of shares. It's just worth 
less than it was a year ago or six months ago or whatever. But you don't lose money until you sell. So did you sell or was it like, what were you doing with this investment? That's a good question. So I, I'm a buy and hold kind of investor, so I have not sold. And that's one of the questions I was going to ask, you know, like, hey, these are all losing money. Should I sell and try to invest in something safer, like an index fund versus, you know, the, the kind of ignorant decisions I made early on with my investments. So yeah, so I haven't sold. I'm just holding on to them. <laughs> what are your investments? Can you give us a, a, a very quick overview of what got you into those investments, why you chose them? Yeah, so I think the breakdown is I have 91% in stocks, 4% in bonds, and 5% in crypto, so Bitcoin. Which stocks? So I would say the majority is in like ETFs, and then I would say the Robin Hood amount is in individual stocks. So big names like Google, Amazon. And then when I first started, I think Robin Hood has like a list of like top stocks to invest in or like most popular. And that's kind of what I looked at and I would briefly like look at the profile on, you know, Yahoo Finance and like, oh, think like this is a great investment and buy some of that stock. And, you know, that's kind of the early mistakes that I made. So most of your loss, um, so you, you had previously fourteen, fifteen thousand $15,000 in Robinhood. Now you have eight, eight and a half yeah. because of the, a, a big drop in Google, Amazon, other, other of these name brand tech stocks. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. And then the E-Trade portfolio, you lost less. You had 15,000. Now you have 12 and a half, 15, 16. Now you have 12 and a half. Um, and that's because those were largely in ETFs and index funds. Yeah, only ETFs. I think only my Roth IRA has uh, mutual funds uh, because that's like the first thing I opened when I uh, graduated was my own personal Roth. But all my recent investments have only been in ETFs. Awesome. If you were to um, assess what, what is the total number of hours that you've spent learning about investing? I've been listening to Bigger Pockets for the past two years. So, like once a week, that's probably less than two hours a week. Okay, but you spent. You spent about 100 hours learning about money, but not really. What? How about specific to stock investing? Oh, um, so I went to school for finance. And so I kind of have an idea of how to like read uh, the numbers on Fidelity, uh, understand like what that means. And, you know, some YouTube as well. Uh, so just watching some general videos and, you know, just my experience from school and what I learned in class. And that's just kind of how I did it. Um, I also... When I first started, when I first got my uh, 401k, I looked at Fidelity and they have like ratings. So like I ignorantly kind of trusted those ratings. Like, okay, this is rated like really high. So like it would be in good, a good investment. But, you know, looking back, I should have done further research into those. Not just like, you know, what is just rated as popular or as a good investment, but really understand like what historically has been the best investing strategy and what performs the best historically versus a short term period. Well, I think, I think there's two issues here, um, with this. And I think, I think like, again, your, your personal situation is fantastic. Um, because you're spending way, so much less than you earn, you've got a great income, your house hacking, um, you have the side hustle that's adding up to it. You're going to get rich. You just need to figure out where you want to put that money from an investment standpoint. And that's what I think you're struggling with is at the highest level is you don't know where you want to allocate all of these funds, right? I think your first issue you brought to us was asset allocation, which is exactly right. Um, and the tool I would recommend there for you is is this is a one page investment philosophy, um, 
And I think that to put that together, you have a lot of homework to do because the investment philosophy follows you for a long period of time. And you've got to make some hard choices when you get into that. Um, it's, it's not just like, oh, I'm going to buy some, buy some Google. You know, that, that, that's great. That's what Robinhood says. That could work. But it's not something that I think you're able to live with. If, if you had come in and said, I believe in Google, Amazon, Facebook for these reasons, and I have these stocks, I think that over 30 years, they're going to do phenomenally well. And I'm ready to ride the ups and downs that come with investing in tech stocks and good times and bad. That'd be totally fine. That's not your viewpoint. You're like, I invested in them because they were the top of the list in Robinhood. And uh, now that they're down, I want to pull out. That means that, that that philosophy is not yet developed. So I would recommend... Um, I would recommend that first you start with the framework. I'm going to, I'm going to get started and I'm not going to diversify, uh, right? I'm going to pick one asset class and I'm going to go heavy in that asset class for the few, first few hundred thousand dollars in net worth. Why is that? Because diversification is a great way to protect wealth, but I think it's a less good way to build wealth. Now people will disagree with me, but I, I really like the real estate house hacking that you're doing. I personally like index funds. Um, with that, that gives me to, you know a, a, a dramatic um, that gives me heavy exposure into real estate and stocks, very little exposure into debt and other and other markets. I don't bother to to pick those to pick stocks personally, but um, you could. So if you were to look at my investment philosophy, and I actually posted a template which we can put in the show notes here, and I'll send to you after this. Um, you know, it says in you know five years I want to have multiple asset classes: stocks, real estate. Private businesses, right? Bigger pockets. Um, um, I do want to get into to lending at some point, but I did these one by one. Heavy, heavy real estate for the first five, six, seven years because I felt that house hacking multiple times was a really powerful way to build wealth. But I'm 95% real estate while I'm doing that. Slowly moving into um, uh, other investments. But I think that like you need to build a frame something like that, and that's going to take some research. So I have four books to recommend to you on that topic. All right. First is one up and I'll send you all four of these books, um, the titles with them. One up on wall street by Peter Lynch, the intelligent investor by Ben Graham. If you were a finance, if you studied finance, um, that book is very, very dry, but very, very important. Um, those books will tell you how to pick stocks, um, which I don't recommend, but I think you need to learn that in order to feel comfortable with your investment philosophy. You need to figure, you see what the experts who have advice on that um, have to say. And then I think that the other two books I recommend are a, a simple path, the simple path to wealth by JL Collins and a random walk down M wall street by Burton Malkiel. And I think that those, those four books will help you give a, get a really strong grounding. And if you read those four, like I did, you might come to the conclusion that index fund investing, um, and putting all that in the, uh, um, all the, that into to Vanguard or fidelity in one of their total market index funds is the right approach, but that'll at least give you the framework to approach the problem um, from a position, you know, a, a belief set that you can actually invest with for many, many years. So I have a slightly different approach. I still believe in real estate like Scott does. I still believe in uh, index funds very much, but my husband and I in invest in individual stocks heavy in the tech sector. All of the ones that you listed are all the ones that we have. Some of the ones that we have, we have others as well. But here's the difference. My husband wakes up in the morning and reads every article that came out yesterday about every stock that we own and every company that he finds interesting, he reads. And let me tell you how much I don't want to hear more about Tesla. 
I talk about this a lot because he talks about it a lot. But I would not feel comfortable investing in individual stocks if I was the one driving the boat 100% because I'm not willing to do the research. I don't have the time. I don't have the inclination. I would just set it and forget it with index funds. He is fascinated by this. He wants to invest in the individual companies. He does the research. So another thing to think about is um, I don't think you're doing a bad job picking individual stocks, but I think you need to have, like Scott said, I think you need to have a reason for for picking them. So um, I've been invested in Google since their IPO, and it's been a great, mostly up, but every once in a while it goes down, stock. It's a, it's a tech stock and they're volatile more so than, you know, your blue chip stocks. Um, but another thing to think about is we've had a tw- what, what, a 12-year run up. And there's been some downs, but it's been up, up, up. This is this is a more, I don't want to say more normal market, but the market moves up and down a lot. And if you're in it for the long term, stop looking at your stocks. That'll give you a lot more peace of mind. Just you want to hold on to this stock for a long time, then buy it and then don't look at it again. And then buy more and don't look at it again. Um, but if you don't want, I mean, it even... Index funds are going to be volatile. Uh, But if you believe in the long-term strength of the United States economy, which I do, then you will see it go up. I truly believe that the stock market will go up again. And past performance is not indicative of future gains. But I do believe that the stock market will go up in the future. Yeah, that's helpful. I think going off of that, you know, I have some mutual funds and I bought them like early on and... I didn't really look at the expense ratios. Like, you know, I was thinking like, oh, 0.9%, that's nothing. But then, you know, now I'm switching over to ETFs and the expense ratios are much lower, like 0.03. So I'm thinking, you know, I would like to buy and hold, but is it is this to a point where I should sell now and reinvest uh, what I can like recoup into lower index funds? Because, you know, as I'm waiting for the market to recover, you know, I'm paying uh, these expenses these expense ratios over that period of time. I like the decision. If, if if you, so first we need a, we need a long-term plan in three to five years, all my portfolio to look like this, not like this, right? You need to be able to articulate that. And that's where the investment philosophy comes in and starting with the end in mind, you're already doing half of this, right? You, you almost all of it, right? You have a strong cash position. You've got Roth, you, you've got a heavy Roth um, allocation. You've got after-tax stocks. You're building a position that's going to support financial freedom. If you continue what you're doing with this because of your asset allocation, you need to pick the investments that you're comfortable with. Um, if you decide that index funds, for example, are the way you want to go, then yes, I like the idea of taking the opportunity now to sell these high fee actively managed mutual funds and move that into passive and passively managed, um, index funds, because you're probably not going to have a big capital gain, uh, problem, um, from, from them going up in value, right? If you've been doing this for 10 years, you might have to harvest $200,000 in capital gains and move it over. I don't think you'll have that problem, although you should you should do the math and check. You'll have some homework there. Yeah, I just downloaded Scott's investment philosophy one-page template, and I think this is going to be really helpful for you to go through and fill out, and it'll help guide you when you are choosing your investments. 
um, in the future. Yeah, I think if I could start over, I would just dump all my money in index funds for long, long-term goals. But, you know, I can't change, like, I can change what I've, uh, the mistakes I've made in the past. And so I guess that's kind of what my issue is now is like, do I take action now or do I wait to see before I can change my portfolio to match what my goals are? I think now is a great time. I think I think you probably have a loss. So sell, take the loss. Um, if, you, if you have one, um, do, do that homework first and move it into the investment that you you believe in, right? Only don't do that if there's some sort of barrier, like a, a large capital gain you have to harvest and think about from a tax perspective, which I doubt will be the case in this situation. So I think you have, I think you can, you could easily do that now and you'll have a, a benefit, um, a tax benefit if you do it correctly, um, that might play out in future years. Yeah. To offset like the loss to offset the gains. Um, same. Yep. Um, you came to us with three questions, right? Asset allocation, um, and then the second one was around maximizing your revenue streams, and the third was around re- reducing taxes. Right, let's talk about the revenue streams. Um, tell us a little bit about your job, um, your real estate, your and your side hustles. Yeah, so I work as a financial analyst for an exchange operator, and I love my job. I have no intention of really leaving. Uh, I'm, you know, interested in moving up in the company, and it's a really great company to work for. You know, I have pretty a flexible schedule and it allows me to pursue interests outside of my nine to five. And as a result, you know, I attended a lot of networking events like local real estate events, meeting, you know, even people who have been on the Bigger Pockets podcast will come to Kansas City and have a speaking engagement. So all of those activities have inspired me to essentially, you know, pursue real estate. Um, I started with my uh, owner-occupied home that I'm house hacking. And the reason I have such a large cash reserve was because I was trying to buy an investment property. And I kind of backed out of that deal because, you know, I I just trusted my gut, ran the numbers uh, as a long-term rental, and it just didn't work out. So I kind of exited that opportunity. And at this point, you know, I'm not really pursuing it unless, you know, something falls in my lap. Uh, and so I doubt that's going to happen. And now I'm trying to understand, you know, what should I do with this? such a large, you know, cash reserve? Um, because it definitely covers my expenses for up to a year. And I'm um, just trying to understand what I should do with the excess. As far as my side hustle, I work for like real estate syndication. It's a team here in Kansas City. So essentially, I'm their intern. I work about 10 to 15 hours a week, um, sometimes more, sometimes less. I'm just doing it outside of my normal hours for my W-2. And it's been a really eye-opening process, you know, to deal with tenants and to deal with underwriting so and sourcing deals. I think this was, these were all issues I had on my own. You know, how do I understand the numbers uh, of this property? You know, if I see something I like on the MLS, you know, how do I know if it's going to work? So that deal analysis was something that I kind of struggled with. And that's kind of why I do regret this home purchase. It wasn't the best purchase by the numbers uh, now that I look back at it. Initially wanted to buy a duplex with an FHA, but there was just none on the market. And I didn't really understand how to look for off-market deals or like how to pursue those. So um, I just feel like I kind of settled with the home that I bought. You know, I pay an HOA and they have restrictions. (laughs) So definitely would not want to pursue another real estate investment inside an HOA. And with my roommates, you know, I, I looked at just market rents for my area and just, you know, kind of settled on a number and uh, it's been good so far. They, it pays for most of my mortgage. You know, I think my total monthly payment for both my mortgage and utilities on my end is around 600 to 700. 
700 being the max they'll ever have to pay, just from what I look at utilities and such. And I do pay a, a little bit more in principal for my monthly payment. I'm just wondering, you know, if I should contribute more. Walk us through the numbers on this this deal, because I think that uh, a lot of folks, myself and Mindy included, are, are going, what is she talking about? This sounds like a great a great housing choice <laughs> and, and house hack move. Um, why do you think it's, what, what are the numbers and why do you think it's not, not ideal? So I would say I kind of bought towards the end of like when interest rates are great, like I have a 4.875%. And, you know, if I would have started earlier or maybe if I, you know, should have waited and held all like my, my cash on hand, or like even have a larger cash reserve uh, to contribute so- to something more like cash flowing or higher appreciation, just because I feel like, you know, I kind of overpaid. I think I went 20K over and it's technically a townhome. So it's not a single family. It's not going to appreciate as much. And, you know, there's so many rules with the HOA. So it's more a little bit of both. Like number wise, I would have ideally liked a situation where roommates were covering my entire mortgage, not just some of it. And also the area. It's a very good school district is what I found. But, you know, that's not kind of what I'm looking for. I don't have kids. I don't need to be in a school good school district. Instead, I can buy like the beat up house on the Missouri side and, you know, be able to put more money into it and get like a higher return or build even more equity for that home. What your mortgage payment is 1630, right? It's 1630 for my HOA is 120 and I pay an additional $46 to even it out to 1800 a month. Interesting. Um, and what would the rents be if you moved out? It really, I think, depends. Like if I were to rent out each room individually versus the whole house, I think I would definitely get more if I were to rent out each room by itself versus like into an entire family. I think market rents are 1900 to 2100 and I have three bedrooms and two non-conforming. So, you know, another goal is to finish the basement. But there is a rule in the county that I live in that you can't have more than four unrelated persons living inside a home. So there's that to be aware of as well. What would you get? What do you think you'll get for rent by the room? If I were to move out, you know, my room is the largest. It's the master and I have a master bath and it's furnished. So I'm thinking, you know, I could probably get 1100 to 1200 a month for. So you bring in 2500 without even finishing the basement. Actually, one of my roommates does live in the basement. She has cats. So she's like nervous that they're going to scratch up the carpet in the in the upstairs bedroom. So I have a guest bed. So it's not being used. You you have, in my opinion, a very satisfactory investment. I don't know if it's going to be a home run or not. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure everyone, a lot of folks are, are scared. Everyone's scared about their first purchase um, in, in 2022. You've got a good interest rate, not uh, not the fantastic one we had two years ago, but a good one, um, not, not, not one that's as high as currently. You have the ability to cash flow this if you were to move out in a substantial way without having to finish the basement. You have more opportunity if you do finish the basement and you are sitting real pretty, in my opinion, uh, in this particular investment. You bought with a position of financial strength. I would not be fretting over this decision. If you keep making mistakes like this, you're gonna become a millionaire pretty quick. <laughs> yeah, in hindsight, I wish I would have bought earlier. I wasn't, I wanted to get my credit score to like 740 to get like the lowest rate, but because I waited, for like the four, six months that it took to get to that 740 mark, I lost out on like a 2% interest rate. So in hindsight, I wish I would have started looking earlier, even though I had like an apartment lease and I would have had to break it, but like it would have been worth it. I think we all wish we bought more earlier. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. But you are learning by doing. You have a 
Scott says maybe this isn't a home run. I think this is at least a double and probably a triple. This is a good investment. And yes, your interest rate is higher than 2%. Well, so is mine. So, and I work here. Don't don't beat yourself up about this, but you are doing. So you, you're learning how to be a landlord. You are learning how to be a property owner. And then now you know what you want and what you don't want. Oh, you know what? I wish I would have done this. So the next time, do that. When did you buy this property? Around my birthday. So I think May 12th. Of this year? Yeah. Okay. So you can start looking again for a property um, when the new year turns, maybe in February. Um, yep. Counting down the days. <laughs> Start looking and see what you can find. You wanted a duplex and you bought a house, a townhouse in an HOA. So don't look for townhouses in HOAs. Look for properties that are duplexes and just wait for that to pop up or keep an eye on single family homes that have the ability to finish off the basement and then you can rent it out to four unrelated people and make so much money that you are living for free and also making money as you are living there for free. I mean, it's you're doing a really great job on this property and you th- you're too hard on yourself. Be nice to Zoe. Yeah. So Zoe, a couple more questions about this property. Um you got three bedrooms upstairs. Yeah. And one of your roommates uses the basement for their cats. Is what I'm hearing. Well, like, there's two non-conforming bedrooms in the basement. And so she has both of those rooms, one's for her cats and one's for her. They're non-conforming because they don't have the egress window. How much does it cost to put an egress window into one of those bedrooms? Three to five K. Three to five K. And how much more rent will you get? Or how, how much rent would you get if you rented out four rooms, the three upstairs and the two at the bottom as a suite with one conforming bedroom? I think that's a personal preference. I don't want another roommate. You know, I'm happy with two. And I think you're going to move in February. You're going to move in February. She's going to move in May because she has to honor her one-year right. owner-occupancy agreement. You're going to move in May. So forget about your personal preference right now and treat this as a cold, cold-blooded, mathematical uh, house uh, uh, ROI decision. You're gone in May. You have three bedrooms upstairs and you have a suite downstairs. You can't have five bedrooms because there's no point in having five bedrooms to rent by the room because the, the statute prevents you from having more than four unrelated uh, lease unrelated people on the lease so my thoughts are one bedroom one two and three upstairs get rented basement gets finished and becomes a suite with one conforming bedroom um on there how much would you get for rent in that scenario does that sound possible or practical given the setup at your house well the two full bathrooms are all on the top floor so like one's connected to the master uh bedroom and one is just a hallway so if there were three roommates outside the master they would all share like one bathroom essentially there is a half bath but yeah as long as you know there's three roommates who are okay with sharing one full bath then it would be possible i think i could probably get 2800 and just charge a little more for the larger bedrooms to make it even 2800 for those three units plus more for the master yeah so that would give you 3900 i i would say 2800 in total like with the master and then having to reduce the rents for the other three tenants just because they're all sharing a bathroom. So, Okay. That's close. I don't know how much it would cost to finish the basement and put in that. It may not be worth it in that scenario. I think it's about yeah, 15 to 20 K. I think it was what I was quoted. I already looked into it. Yeah. <laughs> 
Nice. Are there any rough-ins in the basement to make a bathroom down there? So it is possible to put a bathroom in the basement, but it would be like a 10 to 15K investment. It's a small basement, so like there's not much room to work with. There's already two bedrooms in there and then just like the area where the laundry is. And so there's not really, it's not really practical layout. So I don't think I would put a bathroom down there. Okay. So then in your future properties, keep that in mind. How can I expand this property so that I can get three roommates in here for one year and then I can move out into my next property and expand that one to get three roommates in for one year. And then you've, you're maximizing the four roommates in each one to maximize the amount of money that you're making on each property. And then when you decide that you don't want to have roommates anymore, you can find your last property and that'll be whatever you want. Okay. So, so at the highest level, I'm seeing you made a solid investment here from a position of financial strength. I'm sure you have some things you would have changed about it, but again, this is not a disaster. This is this isn't this isn't even a mistake. This is going to be, I think, a, a reasonable investment for you um, based on the numbers you shared with us. Um, after you move out, you're going to have 2,500 give or take an in income on 1,700 in expenses if you can charge the utilities through to your tenants. So um, that's really good. I, I like that. Uh, I would I would do I would invest like that um, personally. So. Um, that sounds that sounds pretty good. I was told that I can't do like a duplex situation unless I have twenty five percent equity in my current home. So if I were to like you know come May if I wanted to buy a duplex, I would have to have twenty five percent. Who told you this? A lender. How many lenders have you talked to? Like four. And they all said the same thing. I really only asked like two of them, and they said, I believe only one of them said about the twenty five percent. If I wanted to do an FHA with three point five percent down in May. So like with my current home, I only put 5% down. And what type of loan product did you use? I used conventional. Okay. So FHA is going to require you to put 25% down in May. Yeah. That doesn't smell right to me. Well, like 25% equity stake in my current home. I have to have a 25% equity position in my current home in order to use an FHA loan to purchase a duplex in May. Interesting. Mindy, have you heard of this? I haven't, but I think this is a research opportunity. Right now, lenders are real open with their time. So I would call up your favorite lender and ask them to explain this to you. Why do I need 25% down? It could be an FHA rule. It could be um, what this lender specifically wants, if only one of them is telling you this. Uh, but that is an interesting question. Also, if there's a lender listening, if you want to reach out to me, Mindy at BiggerPockets.com and explain what's going on, or we can uh, go over to the Facebook group and at Facebook.com slash groups slash BP money, and we can chat about this there as well. I am skeptical that that will be the case after you talk to more more lenders and we get some feedback. But let's presume let's presume that that, that lender is correct and we have to use 25% down. How much does a duplex in your area cost you? Oh, I meant like 25% in my current home. So if I wanted to put 3.5% down duplex, I could. I just need a 25% equity. That's right. And I only have like 5%. So. But our other option is for you to put 25% down on the next property, right? And avoid that entirely. I would say like it's 350. 350. Two sides of a duplex, yeah. So that'd be like $75,000 down? So 80, 80,000, am I doing that right? 75 to 100. You, you are saving four or $5,000 a month, 
now that we have your side hustle um, in place between all of that. So uh, 5,000 times six is another $30,000. You're not going to be far away from being able to put 25% down in May. So you look at, you're looking at August to be able to do that. Um, just based on the way your cash position is, you could do it sooner if you're willing to take some of your investments out. So you have opportunities here. If you would like to, I mean, you have a decision at the strategic level for asset allocation first to make, do I want to be in real estate this heavy, or do I want to go into stocks and something more passive? But if you chose to do real estate, you would have the option to do this with a traditional down payment, um, relatively soon within the next year. So that's a luxury of the fact that you have such a strong personal financial position and such a strong savings rate. So you have really good options here is kind of what we're highlighting. And um, you'll either be able to do it with another low down payment loan or with a traditional down payment. I would talk to lenders about all of your options. You are bringing up the FHA loan uh, several times. Is that because it has such a low down payment? Okay. I would talk to them about other options that are available to you. I don't know if there are any USDA locations near your near where you're at, but the USDA loan is up to 0% down or down to 0% down. I don't know how you say that, right? Um, th- that's the only 0% down loan that I know of that isn't the VA loan. Um, the FHA loan is an assumable loan. So somebody that who somebody who got an FHA loan in that 2% and then needs to sell, you could assume that loan. There's a lot of ins and outs with regards to that. If anybody is looking to assume an FHA loan, definitely talk to a lender. Um, I need to talk to a lender about this as well so that we can get the information out there correct. But the FHA product is an assumable loan. Um, you do have to bring money to closing to cover the delta between what they had left on their loan and the amount that you're paying for it. That's an option. I really like what Mindy's saying there as an option for you. We've had other folks, and I don't want to get people excited about assuming mortgages um, in a general sense because there's risks and creativity things and all that all other stuff that you really need to be smart with. But you are – you. Zoe are in a strong financial position, save a lot of money, have a good investment property currently, have plenty of cash and are piling up savings on a monthly basis. You are in position where if you wanted to, researching how to assume mortgages for folks and making your next house hack, one where you just take over somebody else's mortgage um, that, that maybe was in that low, low rate, may be a great option for you um, uh, to think about if you can be opportunistic in the next year. So I, lo- I really like that a lot, um, but I don't want to get other people too excited about that. If you have, don't have a strong financial position, then you're just assuming hundreds of thousands of dollars more in risk <laughs> that you maybe shouldn't um, from that. But it's, it's a good option for you potentially. Listen up, business owners. Here's some quick math. Fewer costs equals more profit. The problem? You're spending more than ever on operations, materials, deliveries, software, and more. So why not reduce your costs and headaches with NetSuite by Oracle? NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite lives in the cloud, which means you can reduce IT costs with no hardware required. Cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because now you've got one unified business management suite. 
You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. It makes sense that over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Don't let rising costs sink your business's growth. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash bpmoney. That's netsuite.com slash bpmoney. netsuite.com slash bpmoney. When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets, we turn to NerdWallet. Scott's right. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, Mindy and I were paying for vacations in cash, missing out on miles, and not even knowing what we're leaving on the table. But now we're flying through the skies for free, thanks to our new cards with more miles and upgrades than ever. So if you want more travel rewards, hotel upgrades, or airport lounge access, no matter where you go next, let NerdWallet help you make it happen with a killer travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval, and terms of each credit card issuer apply. It's Military Appreciation Month, so I'd like to personally thank all our past guests who have served and all our listeners who are serving, deployed, veterans, or in the reserves. But I'm not the only one showing appreciation. Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate their members who go above and beyond with exclusive rates, discounts, and tools. This month, join Navy Federal and get $50 when you open a credit card. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate to see their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. With 24-7 U.S.-based member service and resources for veterans transitioning to civilian life, Navy Federal is here to help you reach your goals. Head to NavyFederal.org slash celebrate. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, equal housing lender. Disclaimer, must join an open membership savings account between May 1st and May 31st. Annual percentage yield 0.25% for membership savings account. $5 minimum balance to open, maintain membership savings account, and to obtain bonus. Visit NavyFederal.org for more terms and conditions. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Um, let's talk about the other uh, income streams for the last few minutes here. Um, walk us through your um, part-time hustle with the, with the fund and then your photography side hustle. My photography side hustle is literally like non-existent. I stopped doing it earlier this year uh, just because it's slowly become more like work and less more of a passion. You know, I just started it because I wanted to capture 
family memories. And, you know, occasionally a friend would ask me to take their photos and that's what I did. But I'm not pursuing it as a legit side hustle, if you will. As far as like the real estate syndication, actually, I do enjoy that. You know, there is some difficult parts to doing some of the property management, but, you know, it's been very worthwhile of my time. And that's something I definitely want to pursue if my W-2 uh, will allow it. You made $2,500 last month from this activity, right? It's kind of like a paid position hourly. So that $2,500 was from September 15th to October 31st. That was the check for that. So normally it is around $1,600 a month. Great. And what is what is the hourly rate? Seventeen. And what do you earn at your day job? I don't know what the hourly is. What's the annual? Eighty-five. Okay. So your hourly rate at your day job is forty to fifty. You can just divide the annual um, by two thousand, and that will give you that. So, but that that, and that that's assuming you're working forty hours. So that there's a it's not great arbitrage on this, but you're probably learning a good skill while you're doing this the side hustle. So I like it a lot. Um, but I do think that there would be opportunity over time to figure out how do I try to make sure that if I'm going to earn side income, side hustle income dollars, that it's around the same rate as my W-2. And it's more of an internship position. So, you know, I just started and we've already had discussions of increasing my pay, increasing my scope of responsibility. So that's definitely something I'm very aware of <laughs> and we'll keep in mind moving forward. Yeah. With, with regards to that, I'm going to say that Everybody and their mother wants to invest in syndications right now, and you working for a syndication gives you so much educational opportunity while they are paying you to learn about syndications that I uh, really hate to disagree with Scott, but I think it's just fine to make less than what you're making at your W-2 because this is an educational experience in a field that you want to learn more about. If you were working at the gas station for $17 an hour, I would agree with Scott. But you are learning more about real estate and um, how to find deals, how to analyze deals, how to uh, do property management, how to do a lot of different things. I think it's a great use of your time, especially given your age and the fact that you're not married, you don't have kids, you have the time right now to put into learning about this uh, investment strategy, which you want to do anyway. So you're getting paid to learn. I think that's great. Yeah. And to me, it's not like a job. It's more of an interest that I'm pursuing. So that kind of makes it worthwhile. I think when I was thinking of like the pay, I did look at market rates and that's kind of aligns with the market rate here in Kansas City. And so, you know, there's no really no leverage to give or negotiation. So pretty content with it and, you know, it will increase. So Yeah, I think that I think that's great. Um, the last thing you wanted to talk about was reducing taxes. I don't have a lot of really helpful tips for reducing taxes, contributing to your 401k as much as possible. Since I last, since I submitted uh, those numbers, I did talk to a CPA and just to see, you know, what is, how can I reduce my taxable income? Because my side hustle income is pre-tax. I'm like, you know, I'm going to have a fat tax bill at the end of the year if I don't, you know, plan and like budget for owing taxes. And, you know, that's one of the questions that, you know, I've been thinking about is, you know, how do I track my expenses? You know, I've just taking pictures of every receipt expense that I've had. And, you know, is there a more efficient way of doing it? If there's an app, I know you guys are really great at recommending uh, finance tools. You know, I've utilized like Mint and I tried You Need a Budget as well. Uh, that one didn't really, I prefer using my own spreadsheet uh, 
for budgeting, but just trying to figure out the best way to consolidate all of my expenses and have a clear idea of, you know, where I'm going to land at the end of the year. The easiest way to do it would be to open up another bank account for that business. So just, Hey, here's, I, I am uh, an intern here for this and I'm going to just put everything on the debit card for, for that business. And then it's all in that one bank account. You don't have to worry about it. It'll be, it'll be super clean that way. Um, so I would, I would, that would be, that would be my recommendation is the, the easy button to resolve that problem. I think that's great. Either a bank account or a credit card, depending on what sort of expenses you have for there. I like the credit card to get miles, but uh, if the debit card works better for you, then then that's one uh, that I would do. I actually write on my credit card. I do have a credit card for my house investment purchases, and I just write the address right on the card so that I don't forget to use that card for just that one thing. I got three credit cards in my pocket, right? Or three cards. One is my personal one. One is bigger pockets credit card for when I, you purchase things um, for the company. And the third is my rental property debit card, um, which I just spent out of the bank account. I could, I could get a credit card for the company, but that would just create another complication point for me. So I do it on a debit card. I do have five credit cards and each one has its own purpose. So is six too much? Or I actually thought about, you know, getting rid of one or two just because it's, I do try to keep track of all five of them, but sometimes, you know, I think it might be easier to reduce the number of credit cards I have, but I kind of went credit card crazy at one point and trying to see if like, you know, if it's a good idea to reduce that. I would say make sure that you keep the first credit card that you ever opened open forever. It is your length of credit history and the credit giving institutions really care about that. Um, every other card you can look at and see, is this really giving me the benefit that I thought it was when I first opened it? Um, I have a bunch of different credit cards. One I have for hotels. One I have, it's the Costco card, and I get cash back when I shop at Costco and cash back on gas. One I have for um, airlines. So there's a purpose for each one of them, but if, if they also all have zero annual fees. If there were annual fees, I would have a different outlook on them. So you would not recommend getting like the Chase Sapphire or... <laughs> it depends on how much you travel. I had the Sapphire and then we got rid of it and because of the annual fee. And I think that my husband and I should have had a bigger conversation about that instead of just saying, okay, because it, it's a $300 annual fee, but then you get $300 back every or a $400 annual fee and you get $300 in in travel benefits back every year. I think the fee is $95 for the preferred card. And that's the one I have. So I keep it simple with that. But I, I think the reserve with 495, you got to, you got to use those benefits. Um, if you're going to pay that much. Exactly. Yeah. It's not worth it. If you're not going to use the benefits. I, I want to just kind of frame a couple of things to, to, as we, as we get ready to wrap up here, you are doing great. You're house hacking. You make a great income. You said you're, you're 26. Um, 24. Yeah. You're, you're completely crushing it. So you got a hundred thousand dollars in net worth, not even counting your real estate. Uh, that's 80, 75,000 net worth. I pay in equity in my house now. <laughs> but, but great. You're paying off a mortgage and you're living for close to free. So you're absolutely crushing it with this. You haven't, you have not made a mistake with the rental property. Even if you had the worst timing in the world and prices do come down, 
if if that does happen, you still made a smart investment from a position of financial strength if you hold long enough and uh, and operate well based on the numbers you provided. So you've done you've done fine there. What you're missing is two two things here. You're missing a structure for how to get rich over the next five to ten years. First, you need to think with about the with the end in mind. What does that portfolio look like? I like what you're doing right now. You have a strong cash position, and most of your wealth, or a big percentage of it, is outside of those retirement accounts, right? If you're in 10 years, all that wealth is trapped in retirement accounts and home equity, you're not financially free. You have a big net worth on paper, but no actual freedom. If you keep doing what you're doing at the highest level, you're going to be get, have freedom um, and the ability to, to use those assets to live the life that you want. So keep doing that, but put together an investment philosophy that enables you to get there, whether it's index funds, real estate, or something else. So that's a formula piece. You're missing the formula that you've committed to mentally to build wealth over the long run in your big buckets with your massive sets of asset allocation. That's some homework for you to do. The, the other part is, is the pot shots. Um, you have all these, you have, you have different side hustles, you have your real estate, you have these things. What I'd recommend there is that you spend 90 days and focus on one of them at a time. I think we ruled out real estate for the next 90 days. It doesn't sound like there's a lot of value to be added by finishing the basement or doing additional work with your property. So I like the fact that you're doing this side hustle for the syndication. I think that's perfect. Go all in on that. Make sure that whatever you're trying to get out of this job, um, this internship, actually comes to fruition or begins or begin thinking about switching it some point in the new year, right? Some sort of education, some sort of increased earning power, some sort of opportunity should materialize from this bet that you're making with a significant chunk of your time. And if you do this 10 times over two and a half years, that's 10 quarters, 10 90 days chunks, something will materialize for you. So opportunities will blossom, right? One of those 90 days could be buying your next property. One of them could be the next stage of the, this could, you could just take the internship for three quarters because a new opportunity rolls each time. You could bring back your photography business. But if you do that 10 times and set each quarter set out intentionally to make use of this, this extra time, you're going to hit a winner um, at some point that's going to produce a couple hundred or maybe even a thousand dollars a month in cash flow, or produce a chance at, at, at significant wealth. So I like doing that, but think about it as a formula and build a system or an architect, architect, a program that's going to automatically get you wealthy with where you de deposit your cash. And then that is actually scientific, um, um, about taking these shots with your opportunities. Is that helpful framing? Yes. I think that kind of answers some of my biggest questions, you know, that, I have to take that initiative to decide what I want. And, you know, there's not one, like one fits all kind of a solution for this. I thought I had a good idea of what I wanted to invest in. And, you know, I'm just kind of like reaffirming, like, you know, just put everything in index funds, but I do want some like short-term gains. You know, I don't want to wait three to five years to see the money. <laughs> so I think that's my biggest hurdle to overcome is that, you know, it's not a quick solution. It's going to take some time. I agree. You could be a millionaire in, in three to five years if you play your cards right and have a little bit of luck on that and make a couple of make a couple of big plays. Probably more realistically, seven to ten years um, at, at your current pace, given how early you are in your career and the likely future income potential you have. I would sit back and I would say, what do I want that million dollar portfolio to look like when I get there? That's the freedom point. It's going to be a grind until you get there. So grind it out and be ready to do that, but don't grind your way towards a portfolio that's not going to actually get you what you want in the end state. Um, make sure that that's designed intentionally right now so that you're backing into that 
you're rounding that out and it's, it's the three properties in the same corner that are really easy to manage and all of the same thing instead of a property in Kansas city, a property in Denver and a property in Seattle, whatever. It's, it's an intentional portfolio that is exactly what you want. Make sure you're backing into that and and you're going to be, you're going to be fine. You just need to do that work. Um, and your fundamentals are so strong. It'll, it'll probably carry you to a great outcome somewhere in that time frame, in my opinion. Hopefully that's good news. Hopefully. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> the only thing that I would add is Scott is saying that real estate isn't the right thing to focus on in the next 90 days. And I agree with that to a certain extent, but I would like to see you talk to a lender now during their very slow time to see what are the options that are there. And one of the one of the guys that works at Bigger Pockets, Austin, had a, a really interesting journey to buying his house. And he would talk to a lender and they would give him a little bit of information. And then he would talk to a different lender and they'd give him another little snippet of something. And he was able to piece things together and then he could start asking questions. And they're like, oh yeah, there's this too. So ask all the questions you can think of to ask. What are some properties that, or what are some plans? What are some uh, loan products that I can get into as a young person, as a, a second time home buyer, as a landlord, as you know, all these different options. Maybe there's something available that they don't think that you would be interested in until you share with them what your plans are. Oh, there's this plan. There's this product. There's this opportunity. It's sometimes they're just not aware of what your intentions are. So right now they have a lot of time to talk. So call them up and have a big chat. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Well, Zoe, this was a lot of fun and I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for coming on the show and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. All right, Scott, that was Zoe. And that was, I think, some very great advice for her. I think some very great advice for a lot of people listening. We are in a squidgy market and it's going to go up. It's going to go down. It's going to go down some more. It's going to go down some more and then it'll go up a little bit and then it might go down again. And you, for those of you who are in it for the long haul, just buckle up and enjoy the ride. And if you are if your investment philosophy says, I'm going to keep buying every single week, then buy every single week or month or quarter or whatever. And if your investment philosophy says, I'm going to buy, you know, when the stock reaches this price, then buy then. But have an investment philosophy and be investing for specific reasons, not on a whim. And, and you know, after the recording was over, we asked, hey, was, was this helpful? Um, we always do that uh, because, you know, folks always say one thing on, on the recording and, you know, and, and then you always went the opinion. And she said, yes, of course. But, 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 but what she wanted really was specific, what exactly should I do in this situation? And um, we're really not supposed to do that, but I'm the CEO. So I'm going to go ahead and break that rule. <laughs> and I'm going to say what I, what I did is my situation mirrored Zoe's almost in an eerie fashion, right? Uh, she's, she's 24. When I was 24, I was making less than her, but I had a house hack. I had around that same level of that, that same level of savings. I had lost money by investing in stocks that I had picked like a Chinese fruit juice company, um, that reported their financials inappropriately. Um, all, all those kinds of things. My, my, it, was, it was a very similar set of circumstances there. And what I did is I tried to maintain that cash position of 25, $30,000. I, I took my 401k match. I put, I maxed out my Roth. I dumped everything else into after-tax brokerage savings and I serial house hacked for a few years. And then I took pot shots every 90 days 
on various items that would advance my career, like getting my agent's license, like buying a, a, a property. I started, uh, I floated the idea at least of a winter tire rentals business, which would be a horrible plan um, to, to a local mastermind group. I, I, I did exactly what I, I, I told Zoe there. And my portfolio today is these five rental properties, um, a, a, a large portfolio that is essentially all index funds, Vanguard index funds, and then my my my, my position here at Bigger Pockets. That's it. Like that's the portfolio, and it, and it's that simple um, from that perspective. And it, you just you know every week get a little better at your job, or a little better with the side hustles, or move that next project forward, and you let that compound for eight years. And it's this feeling of monotony or grind. And you look up every every couple of months, you're like, whoa. I came, I came a long way um, with that by, by waking up every day and going a little bit further forward. So there's nothing to be afraid of. It's, it's a long-term investment. It could start with a plan about where you want your portfolio to be in a future state. Work the plan. Um, make, make the formula work for you in a very simple way. And then allow yourself the opportunity to get lucky by taking the chances that you think are the, are the are, roll around. But don't say yes to everything. Say yes to one thing at a time and move forward with it. And, and, and that's what you do in order to do this. And I think she's got that all, all she's, she's so strong in every part of her financial position and her framework. She just hasn't completely solidified it into a crystal clear plan yet. And so I think that's giving her a lack of confidence in a couple of things. She's making very minor mistakes that are almost irrelevant in the scheme of, in the, in the overall story of her personal finance journey. Um, when she looks back in 10 years, but she's perseverating over them because she just hasn't quite solidified all that into one cohesive philosophy and, and framework. She's very close though. And, and I am, I will not be, I'll be shocked if she's not a millionaire within seven years, let's call it. I, I agree 100%. I will be shocked if she is not a millionaire in seven to 10 years, depending on what the stock market does. But yeah, I think you need a plan. I think anybody listening needs a plan and the investment philosophy document will be in the show notes for this episode, uh, the link to it will be in the show notes for this episode. So if you are struggling with your investment philosophy, Scott's document can help you out. All right, that wraps up this episode of the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate you. He is Scott Trench and I am Mindy Jensen saying, gotta go, Buffalo. Military Appreciation Month, so I'd like to personally thank all our past guests who have served and all our listeners who are serving, deployed, veterans, or in the reserves. But I'm not the only one showing appreciation. Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate their members who go above and beyond with exclusive rates, discounts, and tools. This month, join Navy Federal and get $50 when you open a credit card. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate to see their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. With 24-7 U.S.-based member service and resources for veterans transitioning to civilian life, Navy Federal is here to help you reach your goals. Head to NavyFederal.org slash celebrate. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, equal housing lender. Disclaimer, must join an open membership savings account between May 1st and May 31st. Annual percentage yield 0.25% for membership savings account. $5 minimum balance to open, maintain membership savings account, and to obtain bonus. Visit NavyFederal.org for more terms and conditions.